Well, um, thank you both for joining us today. Um, I know it's been like a long time in the works, um, but we're so excited that you're all are finally here. You all are working on such cool projects. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having us. It's exciting to be able to be in conversation with um, such a fascinating podcast. I'm so grateful to know about it, especially as somebody who teaches in an IR school. So <laughs> very important. That's very sweet. Yeah, we're really excited to talk to you. I know we've, we were talking before we got on the uh, on Zoom today. We were saying like, oh, did you like read this section of the Atlas? Or like, have you checked this part out? So it's such like an amazing, I think, as you say in the uh, thing, a living document. That's just such a, it's so fascinating to read about. So it's, we're excited to hear more about it as well. Um, if you all just want to get started um, and introduce yourselves, just briefly briefly before we jump into the, the nuclear atlas? Sure. So I'm Sarah Knaus. I am an artist primarily, um, but a sort of unusually scholarly research-based artist. I am an associate professor of media art at Northeastern University. Um, and I tend to work in a variety of different ways. I sort of have a solo, more um, kind of authorial project uh, practice that includes film and some written texts. And then I have this other side, which is more of a platform um, based approach where I try to create context for facilitating other people's inquiry, discovery, creativity. Um, so that Atlas for me is a little bit of a outgrowth of that side, that platform based side of my work. Hello, um, I'm Shala Krupar. I'm a geographer. Uh, and I work at Georgetown University. I'm Provost Distinguished Associate Professor um, uh, and Director of the Culture and Politics Program. Uh, and I have published various books that have looked at um, biopolitical administration of asymmetrical life, if you will, <laughs> looking at kind of vulnerability um, administration, um, uh, biomedical issues, uh, environmental intersections, uh, and so forth. Um, I uh, am interested in various forms of practice beyond um, sort of scholarly publishing and white paper, the white paper world. Um, and so I've always been, I, I think there's been some different moments of intersections um, uh, with, between art and geography. Um, I mean, I don't really think, when one thinks about forms of practice, you don't think about those necessarily separately at all. Um, and so it was delighted years ago to meet Sarah, um, uh, where I was really interested in thinking about nuclear governance and like what would be some different ways for that to actually be conducted and how that a more participatory and accountable format might, might work. What would those um, practices look like um, and, and more counter practices in the current governing regime? Um, and so... Um, it was great to, I can't even remember, Sarah, where we met. Um, it was probably a, a geography conference, maybe. An AG, yeah. yeah. So um, a lot of my work is collaborative, whether it's the sort of like formal, pub, you know, scholarly publishing or a variety of other um, um, practices, um, most of which revolve, could loosely be categorized under performance. Um, and so, um, yes, so I have been cherished and appreciative of my ongoing collaborations with with Sarah and certainly the Atlas is one evolving part of our collaboration long-standing collaborations together 
Well, we've been talking about, uh, we've mentioned the Atlas a couple of times um, since we started the pod, but would you all mind just telling us a little bit about um, the People's Atlas of Nuclear Colorado and um, where you all see its contribution to nuclear dialogues? Sure. So um, well, I think the biggest question, the question that maybe needs to be answered first is sort of why an atlas, right? Why an, not a book or a history um, or a film, right, about um, the nuclear. Uh, we were very attracted to the Atlas as a really unique hybrid publishing model, uh, where it's not um, just a text, or is it just a collection of maps, but it contains illustrations, charts, explanatory texts, uh, has not a linear history, but rather a sort of accumulation of artifacts, visualizations, and analysis um, that are cross-referential throughout the text but it often skips both forward and backwards in time, right? So we have historical maps against contemporary maps. And this um, juxtaposition of materials is something that people have come to expect from, from atlases. Um, and it has an uncertain temporality and a kind of ethos of accumulation that seemed poetically resonant with the idea of the nuclear and any kind of exploration of the nuclear. Um, so we drew on this form as a means of collecting and cross-referencing the many different types of content um, that the Atlas contain. Um, so that is specifically uh, a kind of geospatial archive of sites in Colorado that either presently or historically have been associated with nuclear activities. And this is very broadly defined. So everything from uh, a group of about 10 key historic um, uranium mines in Colorado, right up to sites of training, right, for uh, the um, missile um, bombing staff, Air Force personnel, et cetera. Uh, and then many subcontractors who were involved in various parts of the early uh, nuclear weapons contracting um, project in the United States. Um, so these sites all contain sort of brief site histories, as well as references on the map, because the dots on the map don't just tell, don't really tell you very much about how sites exist in relation to another or the organizing principles by which these sites were, were selected um, or, and how they were used. Um, in order to better understand those, we also have issue briefs that provide context on history poly, po, uh, policy issues, both in the present and in the past. Um, there are a few personal narratives about how individual people's lives or creative practices were shaped by nuclear activities within the state of Colorado. Uh, and then there are um, a curated collection of invited artworks and scholarly essays. The scholarly essays were um, largely original um, to contributions to the Atlas or adapted from previously uh, published material. Uh, and the artworks, um, mostly though not exclusively, are focused on the histories of specific sites uh, in Colorado or offering a lens an interpretive lens that opens up nuclear issues kind of um, more globally and across time. Um, we wanted to do this as a digital atlas rather than as a print atlas uh, because you can, for, for both pragmatic and conceptual reasons, right? Like the nuclear is for all intents and purposes an internal proposition. And so this project will always be incomplete. Uh, the digital office uh, atlas affords the possibility of continued revision as situations change and the expansion of new content um, beyond the initial what was present at the initial release. So we think of this very much as a people's atlas and not the people's atlas. Uh, and we should just also mention that 
pre-release, we had already worked with a group of about 40 people from scholars and students to designers and artists, activists, et cetera. Uh, and we are in the process of kind of planning future contributions and um, collaborations with institutions, especially um, classes within the state of Colorado to kind of build out additional possibilities for this, this atlas. Well, I think maybe to get at the, um, that's a really great overview. And I think to get at the kind of policy contribution aspect, um, uh, you know, when I, when I think about national relations students and, and people around, um, they really believe it's an important thing to do, right? Um, it's, I, strategizing survivability and around nuclear crisis, preparing for this, all of that um, is, is very much on people's minds, um, but there are a lot of structural contradictions at work there. And I think that um, if international relations um, policy and training thinks that um, military issues um, and strategies of the nuclear age are um, the defining issue, um, and are so important, then, I, then why would one not look at the kind of um, cultural work and everyday impacts um, to global political economies, the governance of materials, um, uh, and so forth, um, um, needed to make and maintain that stockpile. So one of the um, ironies, I think, of the Atlas is that it very much takes seriously the realm of the military and international relations circuits and the curriculum on the nuclear in order to consider what to do with this inherited arsenal and strategy and education. And to really address this requires looking at all levels, um, we argue, um, work in society, not just at the level of foreign policy. Um, so the Atlas really, I think, tries to um, open up policy space uh, and to enter differently and to invite different people into that space. One thing, um, <laughs> I apologize for my cat just walking around in the background. Of course, he decided to wake up. Um, but one thing I, I really love about um, the People's Atlas is that oftentimes I think when you talk about nuclear policy or like, um, technical specifications of nuclear weapons and whatnot. Um, it, it's a very like imagery evoking um, dialogue. And what I love about a people, the people's Atlas is that it, it like builds off of that imagery, but in a very different sense. And like the visuals that the landscape of Colorado provides as well. That's something I've just loved when looking through um, the website. Yeah, I think what I would add is one of the things I really love about it, and this will sort of lead into the next question, is that you have these two different pathways, right? The shadow pathway and the positivist pathway. And I think it, as an international relations student, it really spoke to me about um, this divide, I would say, in the discipline between here are the mainstream approaches, we all know what these are, and here's the more interesting sort of power relations underneath. What, what's really happening that actually matters that drives these issues? Um, so I think we were curious is how, how do you think about critical theories and how do you think that that really shows up in the People's Atlas? Yeah, I mean, uh, one way to begin, I guess, there would be to, um, I think, um, you know, when we think about feminist and post-colonial approaches, um, that they foreground issues of positionality and expertise 
and um, and that that's important to um, the study of nuclear politics, um, or rather should be more central. Um, and so, you know, these approaches challenge, I think, Amer hegemonic American international relations to recognize that different kinds of expertise and knowledges and different positions um, produce different kinds of knowledge. So, you know, they demand reflection of positionality, um, of power at a distance. So there's this kind of, um, you know, if you think about how expertise is achieved around me, everyone has these like, degrees and consultancies in DC. Um, and, you know, this kind of positionality really overlooks the different kinds of expertise that uh, draw upon experience um, or, um, you know, different locations within the nuclear complex. Um, so, you know, when we look at the long-term effects of say nuclear waste, um, you know, there are people who have devoted their lives to tracking and, and understanding this and creating networks of, of care and alternative forms of accountability and, and governance. And there are these forms of expertise that come out through various kinds of attachments and intimacies and proximity. Um, and so I think post-feminist um, approaches, um, post-colonial approaches encourage critical reflections uh, on our positionality within the nuclear complex as well. Um, so they ask us to also think about ourselves in position where our, in our location in these larger systems, uh, there's multiple ways of existing um, and inhabiting and interpreting um, the nuclear. Um, so in a sense, we're already always inside of this and inhabiting positions uh, and um, you know, and I think that there's a kind of privileged thoughtlessness um, due to privileged bodily security and location or in inherited misinformation and secrecy and black boxing about the nuclear. Um, and so we can see, um, I think, you know, there are tactical uses of Cold War legacies um, that um, we can draw upon and that people have been and that the Atlas does. Sarah and I are both, um, you know, children of military industrial complex families and locations and schools um, in proximity to, um, you know, operating in a particular way inside of um, the nuclear field. And I think that that's the last point I think I'd bring out after kind of thinking about positionality expertise. Another one would be sort of the banal every day, um, which I think is a third aspect um, I, I have come to really appreciate about the Atlas is it's you know, Sarah talked about the aggregating ethos of it and this layering of information. There are multiple perspectives uh, uh, and it really kinds of builds on the work of a lot of feminist scholarship of militarization, um, such as Karen Kaplan or Cynthia Enloes and Katz and those folks, um, where we're able to draw connections across these intimate spaces um, with and, and scale out and connect those to more geopolitical, political machinations. Um, we realize the Cold War is sort of everywhere. Um, right. And so I really kind of appreciate the way that it has that connective and intersectional function to it. I would just like to, um, I think, add to Shiloh's excellent answer to that question. Um, you know, I, I think that we, we have some ambivalence around the question of the geographical framing uh, in terms of Colorado, and I'll, I'll light it on that. Um, for reasons that were both um, sort of pragmatic, but then I also think right, intellectually defensible, like pr pragmatic in the sense that, um, you know, if we ever wanted to finish this project, we had to impose some kind of artificial boundary around it. Um, but the particular boundary that we selected was very intentional, right? Um, I think part of the 
uh, imagination of American nuclear policy is that the the home so-called homeland, right, which itself is an occupied indigenous territory, right, or many occupied indigenous territories, has not been profoundly shaped by imperial um, the imperial project, right, of, of which then so the nuclear represents, you know, one especially dangerous um, aspect. Um, and in focusing, say, on Colorado rather than um, so, uh, say, uh, uh, sites of either extraction, you know, outside the territorial boundary of the United States or sites of testing right in the South Pacific, um, we're actually trying to contest that idea that the United States has not been profoundly harmed by its own policy, right, or, or profoundly shaped by, by, this, by this policy and this set of practices. Um, so we celebrate and support projects that center those other other stories and other um, locations. But in this particular project, we wanted to kind of destabilize and unsettle um, conventional understandings of, um, you know, it's like, oh, the military is the backbone of the Colorado economy, right? Like that, 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 that this is a sort of like, you know, unalloyed or unproblematic uh, state statement. Um, so those who, even those who are sort of privileged within um, the military industrial complex, the nuclear complex have also been profoundly shaped by these processes. And I think that's so important because I don't know when I talk to people in my family or people that um, like aren't as invested in politics as we are, um, when they think of nuclear issues, they think of it as this like far off thing that doesn't really have any relevance to me. You know, that's like, Iran, North Korea, China, Russia, like, ah, that, that kind of stuff just doesn't really impact me in my daily life. But I, a people's atlas shows that that idea is just, is just not true. Yeah, I think that's an, it's an interesting way that it kind of thinks about, it uses geographic boundedness using this unit of Colorado, but then is pushing back against um, that boundedness or critically reflecting on that and undoing it, unsettling it, as Sarah said. Um, and I think one important um, aspect of that um, to just underscore um, is that it really, especially in relation to international relations, uh, is that it really pushes back against this foreign domestic framework, um, as always already being a kind of settler colonial aphasia drawing upon um, Anne Stoller and some other folks who, who work on that. But, um, but, you know, it's kind of thinking, you know, this kind of over there, this production of remoteness either through geographical distancing or abstraction that IR is constantly right? Um, and to kind of um, work against that um, and to take up what is disavowed by, by producing that abstract or ge so-called geographically remote picture, what's disavowed in the process of, of, of rendering it that way. And the Atlas is just like all about kind of folding that in, in many layers <laughs> and offering the ability to you know, bring those together um, without a full coherent picture necessarily either, right? Um, it's not, you know, it's more about a kind of um, multiplicity and, and dissensus is really on there. Um, but it, it really does, I think, bring that all into conjunction. Um, yeah. Um, and so we've been talking about how um, critical perspectives, um, especially feminist or post-colonial approaches to understanding international um, relations feature into um, nuclear dialogues, the nuclear broadly. Um, but realist ideas tend to dominate nuclear policymaking, especially in the United States. 
Um, in what ways, in what tangible ways do you two see um, critical perspectives being incorporated into nuclear policy? And how can we break away from this realist paradigm that has dominated um, nuclear politics since the Cold War? Uh, okay, I guess I can start with that since I'm surrounded by teaching of realism. <laughs> so, I mean, for, for me, I, I look at realism and I think it's about as abstract as you can get in terms of a conceptual framework. Um, I've always found it incredibly fascinating that it is labeled realism. Um, it's not unlike the authoritative discourse of, of law that erases the subjectivity or, or author. Um, and so as a geographer, um, realism in American international relations um, training is, is interesting also because it um, presents the world very um, aspatially. Um, space here is empty, undialectical. It's just sort of without history. It's kind of just a hor horizontal tabula rasa uh, upon which state actors vie for zero-sum power. Um, and so this approach really, I think, makes policy practitioners unable to address um, the material impacts of prior nuclear production nor ongoing um, material relations within an evolving um, global colonial world system. Um, so, you know, no one really knows even how to bring up actual people and places involved in the U.S. or beyond the state political container boundaries or that like unit of analysis of this state personified state actor. Um, so, I mean, um, I, I think Another way to put this is I sit in meetings with, with colleagues um, whose academic work and, and careers focus exclusively on, on nuclear weapons um, and this kind of realism technocratic approach um, that actually is fascinatingly decontextualized from any kind of economic production considerations, um, even though many of them claim to do so much work in economics. And I, in DC, it's just so amazing to me how much I run into sort of politicians and the military who have at least some knowledge and experience of geography and production. Um, and it's actually the IR policy academics who um, are largely unable, unwilling, most likely here to think about geography. Um, and you know, economic geography in particular. And so I assume this is partially due to the kind of limitless font of money for military production that supports the production of this kind of academic expertise. Uh, but it's also the problem of American exceptionalism, right, is the geographical basis of US nuclear policy making. Um, and so the Atlas, I think, works to dismantle this somewhere, we hope, um, by first giving the project a clear geographical specificity um, in Colorado, right, and more than any other location, um, I think, in the U.S., although, but Colorado encompasses all these various stages of nuclear production uh, and mobilization, um, and we also have attachments to Colorado, so, um, it's, and that's important ethically to us uh, in this project. Um, but, you know, we've inherited this data from state administrative lines, and in this first um, iteration of the Atlas, um, as Sarah's already talked about, um, you know, we hope to this really just function as a manageable scale and place attachment, yet we use the boundaries of Colorado to ground the project um, and kind of work against this realist paradigm um, to use this, to use the same kind of realist colonial abstraction of drawing data from the administrative unit that we've inherited um, um, the boundaries of the state, but to performatively undo and unsettle that um, container. Uh, and so, um, you know, I think 
the way we do that is to kind of look at the materiality of the earth, you know, deeper history um, and the kind of um, way uranium posits have been um, created. You're that talked about in um, any of those conversations I've been privy to on, um, you know, who, whether we should bomb Iran right now or um, what we should, you know, how we can ramp up the arms race and the nuclear triad under the Trump administration. So, um, you know, we, we also have stuff on, you know, settler colonial land grabs, the drilling of thousands of prospecting holes across the Colorado Plateau, and a whole lot of other things, I think, that really open up, um, which we can talk a little bit more about, the nuclear fuel cycle, um, kind of thinking about its, its geographical location and the material impacts. Um, just to add a little bit to that, uh, I want to talk a bit about the, the structure of the atlas, because I think that that um, tries to perform some of this critique, and you alluded to the shadow versus positivist paths that you, you can go on. Um, so, so the kind of governing logic, um, which is very, very quickly um, breaks down in the space of the, of the user interface of the Atlas is um, the nuclear fuel cycle, right? So this is another one of these kind of useful fictions or reductive models that allow um, the administration of the nuclear to, to take place. Uh, the nuclear fuel cycle, generally, if you look on, if you have Google image search uh, for this online, you will find um, kind of one of two different rough types of infographic, right? One is something that often looks very much like a like a sort of um, electron diagram uh, with like, you have little balls, right? Where a very clear, clean and discrete phase takes place, right? Um, another has rendered those balls, um, I mean, a little less abstract, but sort of made them look like clip art. So it's like, this is the kind of building that enrichment happens. And then we go over the, <laughs> we, right, we go over, this is what a, a containment field might, you know, a, a, a containment um, device might look like. And everything is sort of like very reassuring. Um, there's often nothing that escapes the tight circuit of the nuclear fuel cycle. And so we've taken that kind of roughly as the organizing model for the Atlas, adding to it um, both the material processes, which Chilo talked about. So like the earth, which is the source of all things, right? Um, and then the um, questions of the social deployment of nuclear materials and nuclear weapons um, as necessarily to be considered part of this kind of fuel cycle. Um, alongside that, um, we are also exploring, you know, what we call the, the shadow side, uh, which we don't think of as like a pro-con, right? Um, where we have everything, but, but rather as a question of like what's avowed and what's disavowed, right? Um, and th that which is disavowed is often a direct outcome of the process that's avowed. So just as a shadow is not the opposite of the object that's casting the shadow, but it's, it's the, it's the effect of that object in the world. Um, that is part of how we're trying to contest this kind of realist or positivist approach to the nuclear. Uh, and I think that where, where we find those, those models that are abstracted, that tend to um, bracket out or make invisible or impossible to perceive um, the effects of the thing which they try to represent, um, you know, that is an incredibly important um, contribution for for scholars and artists to, 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 to take up. I would absolutely agree. I think um, I really love the way you described uh, that, Sarah, because I think 
the idea of that shadow and the avow and disavow, it's such a, I think too often maybe in international relations, we don't do much with shapes and figures, you know, we just have charts and however so, but I think bringing in that aspect just adds such a, a different dimension to it, you know, and really helps us see that, as you say, it's not just a one-way diagram. There's so much multi-directionality, things affect another, there's no real linear progress in the world. It's just, we make linear progress we're try- because we're trying to build a particular kind of narrative, which goes back to American exceptionalism, of course. Um, but yeah. The uh, next qu- question that we had, it's, it's more of a broad question. I was just reading the Atlas and I was thinking about, you know, so much of it is about the consequences continued and past of the nuclear present, where it came from. Um, but how, how do you think the Atlas can help us understand where we are today and where we're going? If it's just in the context of Colorado, you know, maybe across the U.S., however um, you think that uh, it's going to be. Well, I, I think one way to begin that is to think about um, nuclear governance and how it operates. And I think nuclear governance has a nuclear epistemology, uh, in a sense, compartmentalizes knowledge. Um, And this has made education and activism around nuclear issues really difficult in terms of um, comprehensive and connective approaches. Um, Different sites and issues often remain um, dislocated in relation to the governance of, of the U.S. nuclear complex. They, they're largely isolated from each other. Knowledge is sometimes difficult to share. And so I think that the what the Atlas tries to do then um, with this legacy, this compartmentalization of knowledge um, and legacies of secrecy, black boxing, and misinformation um, is to, um, in a sense, um, I think epistemologically it works as as Sarah was explaining about its interface, like the, in one way um, it brings these sites and issues together um, um, and the interface is the argument in that sense, Um, um, right? We contextualize all of these different things and um, and the users can sort of um, follow around these different pathways and there's some serendipity and, you know, spilling over into the shadow or the positives and, and, and there's all that going on. And then I think beyond this epistemological level too that's going on um, is a way that um, is an issue of practice um, and action. Um, and I think the Atlas, you know, it serves as this kind of resource tool and platform for the, for the convergence of art and activism and community building and pedagogy um, and a resource tool for research and action that um, has the potential to see new understandings and build new relationships um, across these disparate issues and sites. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, one, one of the effects of that is an ongoing refusal of this compartmentalization and containerization of knowledge in how the Atlas can be taken up and live in the world, hopefully, examining the broader that are going on um, that are disavowed, as Sarah was explaining. Um, I think, um, by not examining these broader ramifications and effects, um, one of the most, I think, devastating and violent um, aspects and legacies of nuclear epistemology is position. Um, and so I think that um, if you understand uh, compartmentalization as this defining characteristic uh, uh, 
of nuclear epistemology, then unpacking this is a way better, um, is a way of, of, of better understanding um, the consequences of the nuclear age um, and nuclear past and our various positions in it. Um, and so we want the Atlas with all of its um, emergent kind of not yet completeness uh, to allow and encourage contributors um, and users to better position their sites, issues, or research in themselves, their lives in a larger framework um, conditioned by nuclear governmentality, but not fully reducible to it. So that would be, that's sort of one, I think, one way we could talk about this huge question, important question. <laughs> <laughs> I think taking taking that into a, a bit of a more like temporally bounded um, direction. So we worked on this for a long time, uh, and I think it's very much a product of its time. So we um, had been working together for a number of years um, with a much more kind of speculative, um, what we described as a satiric and sincere creative performance project. Um, which was called the National TLC Service, which stood for National Toxic Land or Labor Conservation Service. And it was a speculative or, or fictitious, um, maybe more, more straightforwardly, agency operating within the Department of the Interior to do public programming um, around the existence and the presence of nuclear legacies in our everyday lives. So it sounds a lot like, like the, the nuclear atlas, had a much broader scope. We did um, projects uh, in Illinois and um, in Colorado, and we documented and did a variety of kind of um, uh, spoof annual reports um, as, as this agency. And so part, part of this was um, in describing it as a satiric and sincere project, we were sort of directly kind of critiquing um, this realist paradigm um, but also really saying that there is this role, you know, for the government to play if, as the largest scale actor, right, around um, the nuclear, uh, that we, um, that, that, that these questions need to be taken up, right, at the, at the scale of concerted federal government action to clean up sites, to restore um, uh, local economies that have been devastated by the boom bust cycle of extraction, um, and to compensate families who are suffering from the health effects of these, these places. Um, but that was done in this very kind of like um, queer performance and like lots of bright green and yellow um, colors. Uh, we would get dressed up in, you know, hazardous waste suits to give our um, tours and, and annual report. And then um, Donald Trump was elected, right? And the um, already existing, existing desire to rejuvenate a very um, monumental hardened kind of masculinist nuclear policy, which had never gone away, right? Although Obama came into the office as somebody who had written a thesis on nuclear disarmament, he actually invested heavily in smaller, more usable um, nuclear weapons. Um, the Trump administration really represented like something of a break. And in those first few months of his administration, when we were seeing data sets um, coming down from government agencies, um, bureaucrats were actively working to try to preserve knowledge at great risk to themselves, like operating this um, space of sincere satire felt, you know, wrong, right, suddenly. And we conceived of the Atlas really around that time as a way of um, 
making um, actionable information more accessible to the general public, right? As um, almost anyone who has ever tried to research a location, a military location or former military location knows administration for these sites can be very difficult to determine finding human readable um, text about what happened there or what the current conditions are is, is quite difficult. Um, you're dealing with um, 90s web design and lots of you know PDF documents and very little kind of coordination um, and, and very little attention to narrate you know narrative, right Narr narrative or user interface or the actual affective experience of moving through knowledge. Um, and so we conceived of the, of the Atlas as fulfilling a very, a much more pragmatic role at, at that point, right? And of course, then it took us, you know, four years to put everything together and um, where we released the material, right? In, you know, at, at, this, at this moment of kind of uncertainty about what's coming next, but with a lot of contracts already signed, right? And, and expenditures already earmarked. Right, so there is a, a way that a, a kind of Trumpian future for the nuclear is still um, in, in, uh, enshrined in infrastructure uh, that makes it um, very difficult, right? To to you know the the ship of the state doesn't turn on a dime. Yeah, and just to just to add or underscore one point there was just with the Trump administration, as I said, we were seeing you know the kind of I mean ascending to power on, on such cynicism and misinformation, we were just really seeing the scrubbing of all of these government websites and um, the protection of just basic information. Um, and, and again, it's accessible presentation seemed like, you know, it became a really crucial aspect um, of our work, um, with it had been a desire for us to try to knit together um, and link some different aspects uh, in a single platform. Um, so that, you know, I think, um, you know, we have all these really, long-standing interdisciplinary collaborations um, um, from our earlier work with the National TLC Service that then also carried over into this um, where we you know, have been working and involving students and scholars, activists, residents, artists. I think, um, I don't know if you said this already, so I think we have over 40 different collaborators at this point across like all of these different um, realms of um, and um, positions. So um, it's been really interesting to see um, to draw on that and then also have this different kind of work that we've been doing. Um, I can't say that I particularly enjoy doing the, I don't know how many hours of debugging and all of that <laughs> behind the scenes, but um, the digital platform has also been really um, interesting too for, for me who doesn't actually work in that um, exclusively except, you know, like work processing and stuff like that. <laughs> um, so it's been really interesting to see um, what the, the digital kind of platform can do for us as well. Um, and the importance of that um, for a kind of civic infrastructure. No, I think it makes a, it makes a huge difference. I, I mean, speaking as someone who's sometimes digital native, sometimes not, it's uh, always a really nice experience when you go on some kind of platform like the People's Atlas or a People's Atlas um, and, you know, are like, wow, this is very legible to me. This is easy for me to read through, but also kind of illustrates a lot of the contradictions and sort of dynamics of the nuclear history of Colorado that I think are really evident there. Um, one thing that I was thinking about when I was reading it and touched on this via email was just the nature of restorative justice. Um, and 
one thing that I, I often think about when I think about nuclear issues is that so much of this harm that has been done is irreversible. You know, these things stay for thousands, however many millennium of years, and that's never going to change. But I think bringing knowledge to the forefront, in particular, bringing this type of knowledge really from a maybe bottom up approach does serve in some small way a part of that. But I'm curious, you know, what you think about that, how you think about the restorative justice paradigm in connection to your work. Um, well, I think one way to look at this for us is, is through the Atlas. I think we can speak more broadly about our, our work too, but um, with the Atlas, I think, um, you know, we spoke a bit about the interface and curated paths and all of that. Um, and I think that, and this, this focus on making legible what is disavowed um, and, um, and kind of positioning that um, irreverently in the same kind of field um, of, um, awareness as um, the kind of technocratic positivist vision that we constantly see. And I, and to refuse this kind of illusion um, that we can go back to any kind of pure land or recuperate a pure whole body, I think is, is, is uh, one of the additional challenges of this. Um, so, you know, if you are looking at the constant um, repudiation of if if the if the technocratic um, you know nuclear fuel cycle is is sort of constantly putting forward these like neat stages clean stages of of, of production, um, Atlas brings in the kind of friction of debate and dissent or um, surrounding sites like Rocky Flats. Um, you know, uh, it'll bring in the friction presented by the um, insoluble problems of the, the kind of transporting of nukes and the what do we do with nuclear waste um, or the friction of regulatory mechanisms um, um, governing nuclear materials and yet the ultimately ungovernable agency of nuclear materials themselves. Um, and because I think uh, the Atlas in our rendition includes this kind of disavowed or the shadow, like the shadows aren't like the negative, they're just the kind of material geographical you know, effects and remains, they're the cultural political struggles and so forth, um, you know, by putting these into the kind of way that the Atlas is organized into the fuel cycle, it not only like refutes containment culture and nuclear epistemology, realist position, all that um, in general, but it also then does challenge, I think, an idea that we might, the notion that there's a way to restore something to that original kind of, or a pure, whole body or person, um, I mean, the challenge of the nuclear is that, right, it's restoration is impossible, um, if I dare sort of say. So how, I mean, how do we grapple seriously and deeply with what can't be put back together? Um, and so here is, I think, where, um, you know, Sarah and I um, and our earlier work together on the National TLC Service, um, you know, and separately in our performance scholarship, scholarly performances have drawn on a lot of queer feminist ethics, aesthetics, and politics um, and methodologies um, to show how um, what is disavowed um, can lay the groundwork for counter practices, um, and already are, um, uh, that refuse to perpetuate that disavowal and to kind of um, seed alternative futures. Um, so it's, I think, including those shadows is not just about revealing truths. Right, um, which is important in terms of pedagogy um, or dispelling illusions and so forth, but it's it's also about um, you know kind of seeing and enacting um, um, these other counter practices, uh, other arrangements um, that 
could be seen to be restorative or something different than what we are right now. <laughs> uh, so I, I really appreciated your clarification on the question. And I found myself immediately thinking about um, Joanna Massey's nuclear guardianship um, proposal. So, you know, uh, she's a, a kind of activist philosopher um, who has um, written a great deal of work that's really about um, changing our relation to politics. Um, so she has a whole curriculum around you know, the work that reconnects. Uh, and the nuclear guardianship idea is essentially that um, all of these proposals to find like a permanent um, underground repository are um, not only profoundly short-sighted, but they preclude the act of the kind of care that would actually lead to whatever possible long-term security there might be around the issue of um, nuclear waste. So rather than putting it out of sight and underground in some place that um, may or may not be geologically stable for the maximal time that we can currently imagine, which is never the maximal time of the actual danger, um, you know, she believes that the waste should be stored on site as close as possible to its source of production. Um, where communities are basically invested with the responsibility of caretaking, right? And that means inv being invested in with the scientific resources, um, the best possible technologies, but an ethical commitment um, to, to a, a need to a political, the need to realize the ethical commitment that was implicit in the creation of these materials to begin with, right? Um, and I think one of the artworks in the Atlas. Um, that I, I, I also go to with this question of um, reparation um, sort of takes up this idea and, and um, uses it to create specific artifacts and a kind of proposed program for what this might look like um, writ large or on a global scale. So this is Open Care by Eric Berger and Marie K um, Kato. I think I'm pronouncing their name correctly. Um, so they imagine this highly distributed system of sort of artfully encapsulated um, nuclear artifacts or waste artifacts that would be taken into by, on by individuals as their personal belongings with the obligation to pass this specific item down through all of the generations until it is no longer a threat to life, right? So um, it leverages family kinship networks and it personalizes the idea of this as a collective um, human and specifically kind of um, uh, you know, Euro-American, right, um, uh, uh, G7 <laughs> kind of responsibility, right, um, and, and renders it really intimate. Uh, and so I, I think that what is kind of restorative about art, right, or what why we were really emphatic about wanting to include so much artwork in the Atlas is because art is this kind of socially sanctioned space to experiment with what we um, can imagine like the social to be, what we can see, what we can say, what we can know. And so you get pro um, propositions like this open care um, that is an artistic kind of reinterpretation of this notion of nuclear guardianship that suggests that the only thing that's really reparable around the nuclear is the social relations that are currently kind of stalemated in this pro-con um, kind of policy space. And if we don't think about it as so much of as like, what's your position on the nuclear as what's your position in the nuclear, right? We may get a lot further toward having ethical and responsible policy. 
that is a very hopeful note to end on. Um, so I just want to thank you both so much um, for joining us today for this discussion. Thanks so much for the invitation. Of course. Delightful. Thank you guys so much. This is, I think, one of the coolest projects I've ever heard about and definitely one of my favorite interviews we've had so far. Um, the part at the end about reconstructing social relations, and she said something to the effect of, what is your, what is your position in the nuclear? Yes. And that's just prompting so many thoughts for me about like, okay, what is my personal position in the nuclear? Um, yeah. Yeah. That's something that's going to be sticking with me throughout the weekend. I know. I, I had like a couple, I kept writing things down. Cause I was like, what about that? What about that? But, um, I really like, cause I, when I wrote the question about restorative justice, I sort of, you know, I thought it, cause I was like, well, it's something that's interesting. I'll just ask. And then, you know, when Sarah asked me to clarify over email, I was like, what do I mean by this? Let me think. <laughs> And I was reading uh, and I, I started thinking about, you know, the nature of nuclear harm as being so irreparable over time. And I liked, mm -hmm. she said, the only thing repairable is the social relationships that we have. And I was like, wow, what, like, what a thing to say, but also what a thing mm -hmm. that like, you know, to your earlier question about what can critical approaches bring us, like you would never have that answer you would never even be thinking about that as a possible way of moving forward if you only stuck with an orthodox approaches. Mm -hmm. And I, so much of policymaking is just stuck in that. And it made me, um, when I was in Korea, we, so much of our work was like focused around the nuclear fuel cycle. Um, mm -hmm. And it was like, you know, how to intercept materials or prevent breakout based on um, their position in the nuclear fuel cycle. Um, and we ended up going to this, and I forget what agency it was. It was something about, and they were advocating for like nuclear power or something like that. But everything was dressed up in bright colors. They had these little cartoon character um, things that were like their mascots. And it was just something that really struck me that I was there that I believe Sarah touched on too, is just how the, what would I want to say? Like the character caricaturization of these things make it seem so innocuous and it's not or simplified and like ahistorical in a way um and so really trying to ground the nuclear in historical is so critical and I and I almost feel like that's step number one for like changing the way that we think about nuclear policy in the way that nuclear policy is constructed in the United States, especially. Absolutely. I mean, it makes, I'm sure we've had this discussion on other podcasts, but it always makes me think back to, well, when I was first taught about nuclear weapons, what did I learn about it? Right. And we all learned about it from world war two. That's mm -hmm. like what they tell us about it. And they're like, then it sort of ends there. And then they're like, ah, oh, testing during the cold war, whatever, but there's no real reckoning with well, how did we come to this point? What communities have, and what, how does like different parts of like geography on the earth reflect that like iterative learning process that was very, you know, back and forth over time. Um, the other thing that 
Sarah said that I'm like stuck on <laughs> is um, when she was talking about nuclear guardianship. And she mentioned that, you know, the people that made this technology, the communities in which it happened, the places they have this, when you create that kind of destructive technology, you have an implicit ethical commitment to deal with the consequences. And I was like, we do, but yet it's never talked about or recognized. So we, in the sense, if you think about, um, I mean, this is a very small example, but if I remember correctly, there was a nuclear weapon being transported somewhere over Europe. It like fell out of the plane because accidents happen. Of course. Like, oh my God. Yeah. And you know, it was, it didn't blow up obviously. Um, and we like sent people there to clean up and blah, blah, blah. Um, but it just gets me thinking that's like such a small piece about what, what does it mean to be ethical when we create weapons like this, when we create technology like this and why is that not being taught in our schools? And why is that not a huge part of what the military does? Like, are there ethics courses at West Point? Like, what is the extent to which ethical considerations go into militarization of these things? And that, I mean, that just makes me think of, um, I'm pretty sure they have some sort of ethics courses um, in the like DOD project I'm working on right now where we talked about like, um, what sort of social sciencey things do they have? Do they teach at the military academies? But um, I feel like that like begs the question in a way: How ethical can you be when it comes to war fighting? Like that's a that's such a like an inherent contradiction in and of itself. Maybe science then, if not the military. Science. Mm-hmm. Like, I know they have ethics courses. I, I know that there is like, you know, cause I mean, we could say that medicine is science and they have like the Hippocratic oath as just one very small aspect, but I think, and this goes back, I think to positivist kind of innovation, problem solving led approaches to science, whether it's IR or natural sciences, but there's just this emphasis on like, we have to innovate no matter the cost. We have to keep going. It doesn't matter what like things aren't being said, what ethical considerations aren't happening, but we have to keep advancing. And it just makes me think at what cost, you know, at what point will that cost become so great? And I, I, I don't know. When we decide that capitalism is not fucking worth it anymore, because there is no ethical consumption or production under capitalism. So I don't know. My, of course, I always bring it back to capitalism. <laughs> it all comes back to capitalism. It all so I mean, back to capitalism. Of course it does. Yeah. That's a much sadder note to end on than the one we ended no, on. No, I, and Shiloh. I have, I have a better note for us to end on. Great. Okay. It goes back to decolonial theory. Shocker of shockers. There's this uh, terminology that I think about all the time called pluriversality, um, which I'm sure you know about. It's just like this idea that there's, it's ethical to have multiple ways of seeing the world, multiple universes, multiple approaches. But, you know, that, that, that's the bigger idea. But the smaller part is it judges as morally wrong approaches that don't allow other worlds to exist capitalism and extractive industries being like the big two 
And it just makes me to going back to the Atlas, which I would suggest all of our listeners go through. It's like such an incredible resource. Um, Show notes. I'll link it in the show notes. Um, But just considering that we may live in a capitalist extractive society and that is a judging by this kind of pluriversal method. It is one that is morally and wrong because it doesn't allow the possibility for other worlds to exist. But if you can create cracks to create these alternate futures, I think a people's Atlas does a really incredible job of showing how we can do it and what we can learn from it. Absolutely. What a much happier note to add. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening. This is our last episode on nuclear issues for the foreseeable future, that is. Um, and next, we are moving on to a series focused on international institutions and critical perspectives on international institutions. If you have any comments, questions, or just want to chat about what we talked about today, um, slide into our DMs on Twitter at DisruptRCP or email us at DisruptRCP at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Or if you'd like to chat in the future about our new section on institutions, feel free. All right. We will chat to you all soon. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.